Good morning. If you got your Bibles, go to the book of First Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter six. Starting at verse one. First Corinthians chapter six, verse one. Let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, I thank you. We praise you, God. You are God and there is no other. Help us to focus on you, God. Truly speak to our hearts, God. Give us revelation and understanding of who you are and who we are in you, Father God. In Jesus' name, let us learn, let us love, let us live in Jesus' name. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 6. We're still talking about life in the Holy Spirit. And last week we got to talking about how God demands us, commands us, and requires us to be holy. No holiness, no heaven. And we hinted towards the fact that one of the principal foundations of holiness is devotion and dedication, being set apart solely for God and God's use. And that if we get that aspect of it down, we get all of holiness down. If we understand that true holiness is being and belonging to God and God alone, and we get all the residuals that come from it. And so we're going to continue in that same vein. And like I said last week, in this talk about holiness, we're going to begin to transition into identity, understanding who we are as human beings. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be human? Because our identity and God's nature are tied together. That you can't truly understand yourself and how you're supposed to live, and who you truly are within, unless you understand who God is. And so holiness is pivotal in this point, that we are required to be holy, we're demanded to be holy, and that holiness is devotion to God. And I'm going to try to show somewhat of the transition, just walking through this chapter, we're going to focus in on this whole chapter, how that devotion leads to the actions that we generally acquaint with being holy. Most times when people think of you have to be holy, God requires you to be holy, we immediately go to the actions that we can't do this, we can't do that, we can't go there, we can't, and so on and so forth. But if we understand the relationship aspect and the devotion, we will see how the, the actions flow from that. And it won't be so so much of a daunting task for us to think about all these stuff we got to do and we can't do all these bad things because we holy people. And we, our mind focus on what we can't do and trying to meet this external standard. But if we understand that the holiness that we strive to is a devotion to God and it flows from a relationship with God, that makes it a little bit easier. But the foundation I want you to get, if you don't remember nothing else, is that holiness the principal part of it is devotion, is devotion to God. That's the principal part of holiness, being devoted to God. Now, let's watch how Paul teaches this principle through 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, when you first read this, we're going to read it all the way down through and come back and pull out the parts that's going to help us understand. Now, when you first read this, you're going to think in your mind, what does this have to do with being holy? <laughs> let's read and we'll see 
Actually, let's pick up back up to verse to chapter five. Verse nine. Chapter five, verse nine. First Corinthians five nine. So I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with fornicators of this world or with the covetous extortioners or with idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or a covetous or a idolater or a real or a drunkard or an extortioner with such a one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do you not judge them that are within? But them that are without God judge it. Therefore put away from among you yourselves that wicked person. This is Paul. He's talking about what he written to them. You seeing the, the, the flow of the thought here. He lists these group of people, the idolaters, the fornicators, the covetous, the drunkards. He said those who name the name of Christ, who call themselves brethren and have this as their mark, as their lifestyle, they participate in these activities, don't associate with them. Cut them off. Don't keep company with them. He said even the one that's a fornicator, don't even eat with him if he call himself a brother. So the people who name the name of Christ, who say there are Christians, who say they live for Jesus, who say they've been born again, saved, and so on and so forth, but they cheat people. They're liars. They they fornicate. So they're covetous. Their life is built with greed and desire to have is what, what fuels them. So with these type of people, don't keep company. And if he's a brother and he called and he's a fornicator, don't even eat with him. And the flow is, he begins to move to judgment. It's like, we're not to judge those who are without, but aren't we to judge those within? A rhetorical question. So those who are without, meaning those who are not a part of the body, those who are not brethren, God going to judge them. But we are to judge those that are within. And his point is, is that everybody who connects themselves to us, everybody who we associate with that names the name of Christ, we should hold them to a standard because they name the name of Christ and they'll call themselves to be brothers. So if you got cousin that's a liar, a cheater, an extortioner, a fornicator, a drunkard, that's just who they are. We're not to judge them. We're not to, to disassociate with them purely based on those activities. Now, we're not to participate with them. That's why I say even the fornicators of this world, we need to come out from among them or not be a part of them. But we don't shun them because of those activities. But if cousin, uncle claim to be a Christian, claim to hold to Jesus, you got a, a church member, a brethren that lives in these same type of lifestyles. He said, don't associate with them. And this is a form of casting judgment on them. That we don't eat with these people. If you claim to be a Christian and you are a fornicator, the fellowship of brethren is cut off. And this is the form of judgment that he's talking about. And he, watch our bills going into six. Like I said, he chapter divisions, they ain't divine. Some dude put them there. Said, dare any of you having a matter against one another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? 
And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that we shall judge angels. How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. So he's talking about judgment. Then he switches a little bit. Like anybody got a matter. So basically somebody did you wrong. Chelsea done done their nails. She done scrubbed all the, the dead skin off the back of their feet. Got that table saw and cut all that stuff off of there. Chip coins off. Did it up. And it's supposed to be her brother or sister in Christ. And they said, girl, let me go to the car. I forgot my wallet. And she ain't seen them since. <laughs> I ain't seen them. Normally meet up, they all avoid them. Now what Paul is saying, somebody done you wrong like this. What you don't do is call Judge Matthew. You don't take brethren to the courts. So if they claim to be Christians, if we all in the family, if you scrub them corns off Cabronica feet, got cramps all in your forearm because them things were so thick, (laughs) and she done stiffed you, what you don't do is go downtown and put your business all out in the street because she's supposed to be your sister. That's the basis of what he's saying. But watch his argument on why you don't do so. He said, do you not know that the saints shall judge the world in verse 2? In verse 3, know you not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? It's because of who you are. As a Christian, you should be at a place where you are above this. So your identity exempts you from participating in these type of activities. This is the basis of his argument. So we don't go to court, not because going to court is evil and going to court is wrong. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you don't do it because you better than that. And you are in a position where you are in a position where you should be able to judge the courts. They shouldn't be judging you. So since you are saints, since you are in this status where the world is going to be judged by you, Angels are going to be judged by you. So what he's meaning by that is it's going to be a point in time in eternity where we sit in judgment, where we sit, we rule, we make decisions that pertain to eternal things. So if that's who you are, why is it that you cannot settle disputes pertaining to this little small earthly stuff? That's the basis of his argument. But the argument is identity. You, 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 you see in the flow of the thought. Because of who we are, there's certain type of people we don't associate with. Because of who we are, there are certain activities that is below us, beneath us, because of who we are. It's our destiny to judge the world, so why are we going to let heathens judge us? That's why they say, if you got a matter between brethren, people who bear the testimony of Christ, people who live for Jesus, if there come up a matter between you, he says, get the least of you, the one that got the smallest reputation in the church. Get that one and let him judge. You see in the picture? He said, you don't even go to the deacon, the elder, the bishop, 
the, the world-class evangelist, he said, you go to the small, the one that's least esteemed in the church. So the one that got the lowest reputation out of all the church folk you know, you get that one and let them judge. And he's saying in verse five, I speak to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise, is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brother. So he say, I'm telling you to get the least because in the midst of you, there should be wise people. So because of who you are, you should be at a status where earthly disputes should not be a big issue in the church. It should not be because of who we are. Are you seeing the flow of the thought right now? It's not that Paul is saying that you are evil. If you go down to the courthouse, what he's saying is you're better than that. So you should not have to go down to the courthouse because somebody among you should be wise. You're saints. You're the people of God. You're the people that God has chosen to rule the world one day. That's who you are. And you can't rule a little dispute inside the church. You split up because the drummer and the piano man fussing about who should get paid the most money. Y'all can't figure that out. But yet and still, you think one day you're going to make it to heaven and, and, and have supreme authority and rule on the throne with Jesus. Well, you can't keep one small little band together in a church. You should be better than that because of who you are. But let's keep tracking. Said, so, but brother, verse six, but brother go to law with brother. And that before the unbelievers. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to the law one with another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, you do wrong and defraud, and that's your brother. And now he's he, he pointing the finger at it. He's getting down in it. You're taking your brother to the law. And what Paul mind is, you should be in a position because of who you are that before I drag Kingdom business before unkingdom men, I rather take a loss because the world can't judge the church. That's his position. So because the church is underneath Christ, Christ is the head of the church and all things are in subjection unto Christ. That means all the world is beneath us. Now that may sound arrogant. That may sound a little bit exclusive. Shame, bigoted, and so on and so forth, other words that they have. But that's biblical truth. Christ is the head of the church. All things has been placed in subjection unto Christ. So you got Christ, you got the church. Where does that leave everything else if everything else is up under Christ? Beneath us. That's who we are. And he's saying, before I drag my brethren and before I defraud the kingdom of God and disgrace the kingdom of God by taking brethren to the courts, I let the heathen courts handle the heathens. The children of God should be able to handle one another. Before I do that, you should be in a position where you suffer loss, where you take the wrong. But he said, instead, you're doing wrong one to another. That's deep. So before I do you wrong, I take wrong, is what Paul's saying, because of who I am. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So before Chelsea get mad, and find that Avalon and start slashing ties. <laughs> she would rather 
take the loss, ride with the debt like he ain't did nothing to me, and deal with you straight as a brother. Take the loss. That's kingdom position. But why do we do that? Do we do it because of a command? No, we do it because of our position. These things in this world are small, they're petty, they're insignificant to us. We are above them. So I do not destroy the body of Christ. I do not bring shame to the kingdom of God over some small transaction. If us as the people of God can't work it out, it can't be worked out. That's what he's saying. But it's because of who we are. We don't defraud. We don't cheat. We'll take loss before we do wrong. Because of our position. But watch, watch how this thing go now. He, Paul gonna get, he gonna turn a little gangster on. In verse nine, talking about, he, he getting on them. He said, you do wrong and you defraud and that's your brother. So these people are doing wrong. They're cheating. They're fornicating. They're stealing from each other. Said, know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Read that one more time. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Now, who has he been talking to this whole entire little passage that we've been reading? To the Corinthian church. And he referred to them as saints. He told them that one day they're going to judge the world. He called them brethren. This is who he's talking to. Saints who are going to judge the world who are brethren. These are the people we're talking to. And these people are doing wrong, cheating one another, defrauding one another. And he turns from calling them out for their sins to give them a stern warning. And the warning is, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. So in the mind of Paul, their actions warrant this warning. But also in the mind of Paul, there's a possibility that they can be deceived in their position, in their state, to thinking that the way that they're living is okay. That's why he said, do not be deceived. He took a pause. He was running his line of thought. You defraud. You cheat. Don't you know that doing wrong ain't going to get you into the kingdom of God? Then he pauses. He said, be not deceived. So it's an idea that it's possible for a believer to get that I can defraud, I can cheat, I can fornicate. I can be an idolater. I can be covetous and still inherit the kingdom of God. That's the thought that he's coming against. And he had to tell these people who he referred to as saints, who he told them that one day they're going to judge the world, who he referred to as brethren, that don't be deceived. So you who are saints, you who are brethren, you who going to one day judge the world, you need to know that if you are unrighteous, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is not just speaking to some general group outside of the people he addressed. He didn't just start pontificating and, and put a side notice that this don't apply to y'all though. His audience has not changed. His line of thought has not changed. He's still going with the same flow that he was coming from with all the way from chapter 5. So them 
fornicators, idolaters, covetous, drunkards, all the folks that he named in chapter 5 that we don't supposed to associate with, that should not be a part of our brethren, that should not once be named among us. He's saying them same people, even though they claim to be Christians, even though they have made a testimony, even though they signed a card, they've been dumped in a pool, they done raised their hand, walked in front of the church, repeated up to the preacher, so on and so forth. Them people are in a position where they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I don't want anybody to be tricked, anybody to be deceived, to think that it's possible to be a fornicating Christian, a stealing Christian, a lying Christian, an adulterating Christian, a drunk Christian. Now you understand what I'm saying? So if you're drunk and you're a Christian, you a lie. You can't be both of them. And if you're the former, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. But you can say, well, preacher, this man told me that once I'm saved, I'm always saved. And it ain't about my good works. It ain't about what you do. It's about what Jesus did. When I sinned, Jesus had already died. So all my sins was in the future. That's true. But Paul is true, too. If you are a fornicator, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I confess my sin. And, and God don't see me. He see Jesus when he look at me. He don't see my sin. They've been cast into the sea of forgetfulness. That's what happened. Because he died for me, past, present, and future. So before I sin, my sins have already been atoned for. So my sins are not credited against me because I'm not under the law. Where there is no law, there is no imputation of sin. This is stuff people say. And that sounds good. That sounds deep. It sounds logical. But Paul is true too. If you are unrighteous, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And some may say, yes, that is true. But I'm not unrighteousness because I'm the righteousness of Christ. He's been, I've been positioned in Jesus and Jesus is my righteousness. That's true. Now let's see what Paul got in mind when he talk about people being unrighteous. Verse 9 said, Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Those who do not have a testimony that they one day they confess the Lord Jesus Christ. That ain't what your Bible say. But those are the unrighteous, right? Those who have not been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost in Jesus' name, that ain't what yours say. That ain't what yours. So Paul's idea of righteousness don't go with confession, testimony, repeating after a preacher. That ain't what yours say. Be not deceived. Whoever does not say the sinner's prayer shall not inherit the king. That ain't what yours say. So Paul, when he's thinking of unrighteousness, he's not thinking about a position in the sense of a state of being. He's thinking about a state of being that's being dictated by actions. Because what does he start to name? Start naming stuff people do. Say, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So he gives you his principle. The unrighteous won't inherit. 
Then he breaks down what he means by unrighteous just in case there's any confusion. Those who do unrighteousness are unrighteous. So if I got a testimony that I love Jesus, if I got a testimony that I've been saved, if I got a testimony that I repeated after the preacher, but I am a drunkard, a fornicator, an idolater, a covetous person, does that exempt me from this verse? No. Paul is still talking to me. Because my confession does not change my condition, God does. And if God changes me, there should be a change. So if all I got to depend on is one day I said a prayer, one day I repeated after a preacher, one time at Bible camp that I cried, And the little leader man, he hugged me and he prophesied to me that I was going to be a preacher. And I remember that moment like it was yesterday. They were playing Donna McClurkin. We fall down, but we get up. So I know I'm a Christian. If that's all you got, you ain't got nothing. Because confession does not change your condition. God does. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So Paul's line of thought, all these activities, this wrong stuff, exempts people who have a testimony of believing in Jesus from entering into the kingdom of God. But watch, watch how he switch it, though, in, in, in chapter, in verse 11. Saying, such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God says, such were some of you. So now Paul is showing the transition. All of these things exempt you from the kingdom of God, and some of you were those things. So there's a change in the mind of Paul concerning these people. So you were a fornicator, you were an idolater, you were covetous, you were a drunkard, and so on and so forth. But you're not anymore. Why? said, but because you were washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. So they've been clean, they've been sanctified, they've been justified by the Lord Jesus, under, I mean, by the Spirit of our God. Said by In the name of the Lord Jesus, by the Spirit of our God. So the Spirit of God has done something to them. He washed them, took away all the bad, took away all the wrong, took away all the uncleanness, the impurities, and he said they are sanctified. So there's a change and there's a transition. So everything that was wrong about you, everything that defiled you, everything that made you impure in the sight of God, everything that made you unrighteous has been cleaned away. Now you are separated and placed into God. So you're washed, you're sanctified, and you're justified. All of this by the Spirit of God. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So since there's a change because he shows the change when he said in such were, but. So all of these things apply to you, but they don't apply anymore because this thing happened. So the name of God, the spirit of God stops me from being a fornicator, from being an idolater, but being adulterer, but being effeminate, so on and so forth. And it changes, it transforms, it brings about a different state. 
You understand what I'm saying? And so this is the foundation that we're going to go for. So you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified by the name of God through the spirit of God. 11. Now this don't seem like it's going to match. So all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Everything is lawful for me. What in the world does he mean by that? Now, Paul just got done telling you all this stuff that's going to get you kicked out of the kingdom of heaven. And he follows that up with telling you everything is lawful for me. And what he means by lawful in this sense is that it can be done openly. So everything is available for me to participate in. A lot of people take this and they apply it exclusively means that it's legal. It's okay. It's been approved. And that is one use of it. But the basic meaning of it can be done. It's okay. So everything can be done. There's nothing in this list that cannot be done by me. So what he's saying is I can go and fornicate. I can go and get drunk. I can do it. Does it mean it's okay for me to do it? No, because what he just said is still true. You understand what I'm saying? That means you can do it. It's like I was talking to a kid at work. And um, he's just acting a plum fool. Just going crazy. Doing a whole bunch of stuff he should not have been doing. And this one particular time, he ran. He ran from me. And it was 9, 10 o'clock at night. Supposed to be asleep. He running around. And his anticipation is, I'm finna chase him around, jumping over walls and all this stuff. Because he, he just, he, he bad. He already in trouble. So I might as well do what I want to. But something strange happened. And he didn't know how to deal with it. I slowly walked behind him and I sat down and looked at him. He's standing. He ready to go. I sat down. He tried to talk. I said, shh, shh. He, tried to sleep. he looked at me like this man is crazy. <laughs> and he just wanted to do his little thing, but I would not acknowledge him. Then it got to a point where he realized this is not quite working out the way I anticipated. So he was stuck. And he wanted to go back to the time I said where he was supposed to be. But he was scared. And he looked at me and said, what do you want from me? I ain't said nothing this whole time. But And I looked at him. I said, son, now you've done everything you want to do. And I ain't got mad at you. Now, when it's my turn to do what I want to do, don't you get mad. And the principle I was living by is you have the freedom to do what you want to do. But freedom does not exempt you from consequences. And that's a hard lesson he had to learn that night. Because he was stuck. 
Cause I done ran, I done cussed folks out, he hit a kid, he done fought, he just did all he wanted to do. Tore up a radio, he just, I'm talking about having a grand old time. But when it was time for the consequences, and it was my time, he could not say, well, no, you let me do it. Yes, I did. Because you had the power to do so. And the question I had after it was all over, and I had my fun, was, now, son, what did you gain by all that foolishness you did? Nothing. And this is the same principle that Paul is referring to. When he say all things are lawful unto me, what he means, I have the ability to do all things. You can do it. If you want to listen to Joe Clark, you can smoke crack. You can do it. There's nothing that's going to take your hand and make it fall off if you pick up a crack violence and get ready to smoke it. It ain't going to happen. You can do it. If you want to sleep around, lay around with everything and everything on the cloak, you can do that. All things are lawful. That's what he means by all things are lawful. He's not here giving the principle that exempts what he just said two verses before. Because if all things are lawful mean that it's okay and God is pleased with it, God accepted, that means what he just said does not make sense and is wrong. Because God cannot accept it and punish you for it. So by all things are lawful, he means that you can do it. But all things are not expedient. And what he means by expedient is that all things, the word literally gives, is like a word picture. It means to bind in hand to go forward. It's like somebody coming alongside of you to help you accomplish a task. That's what he means by expedient. It helps out. It gets you to the goal. So all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. So what Paul is saying is that there are some things that I can do that I have the quote-unquote liberty to do as a Christian that will not get me to the place that I'm going. There are some things that I can do that will exempt me from the goal and the promises and the blessings of God. They ain't going to help. Can you do it? Yeah, you can do it. Can you do it and claim to be a Christian? Yeah, you can do that. Can you do it and still receive the rewards and benefits of God, the joy and the blessings of eternal life with the Father? No, you cannot. Because all things don't fulfill the task. All things ain't going to help you get to that point. So what Paul is saying is just because I can do something does not mean I should do something because I have something that I'm striving towards. I have a goal. I have a destiny. I have an identity and everything that I participate in does not further that. It's bigger than right and wrong. It's bigger than what's legal, what's illegal. It's bigger than what's socially acceptable and what's socially unacceptable. It's about me and God. It's about my eternal destiny with the Father. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And he repeats it. He said, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And now we're starting to get down to the grassroots of holiness. All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. Everything don't help me. 
Everything ain't going to get me to where I'm going. Everything is not going to further my destiny, my identity as a, a, a believer in Christ. And also all things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. What he mean by that is nothing outside of me is going to control me. So I can do and I can participate and I can be a part of all these things, but no thing will control me. Nothing. So if my goal and my actions are driven by something other than my identity and my relationship, I need to possibly say no. Because don't nothing control me. Don't nobody own me. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So nothing should overpower you. Nothing should possess you. Nothing should drive you. But where are we going? Oh, it's beautiful how we get there. Say meats for the belly and the belly for meats, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What do you mean by meats for the belly? So meat, food is what he's referring to, is for the belly. That's what it's made for. And the belly is made for food. So there's a correlation. There's a relationship between the two. One exists for the other and the other exists for the other. I don't know if I said that the way I wanted to. Sound good up here, but I can't think as fast as I can talk. <laughs> but God shall destroy them both. So the belly is designed for meat and meat is designed for the bellies. So in that relationship, there's a harmony, but God overrules that harmony. You understand what he's saying? But then he makes his transition and said, but now the body is not for fornication. Uh oh. The body is not for fornication. So just like your belly is for meat, your body ain't for fornication. But you say, well, preacher man, at a certain point in time, I just begin desiring. And it's natural. And, and, and I start wanting to be with somebody. And it's just this desire for companionship and relationship and so on and so forth. All this other st- type of biology and chemistry started happening to me and I just can't control it. And it seems to be natural. God made it that way. But Paul said, now, just like the belly for me, the meat for belly, the body ain't for fornication. So whatever fornication is, your body ain't made for that. That deep. So now, when you listen to the man on the radio, on the TV, and Steve Harvey tell you that he understand what the Bible say. But you got to be real with yourself. Can't nobody just control themselves. You just can't be out there living single. You know what I'm saying? You can't be doing it all. You know what I'm saying? People tell you the type of stuff. God understands. God made you. God put them desires in you. God put that, that, that passion in you. God designed the body. Paul told you. It's a deep question. Now I just thought about it. Am I willing to trust Paul or Steve Harvey? That deep. Like, who should I let influence my thought and my worldview about what God wants and what God desires and what God accepts? Paul or Steve Hart? Hmm. 
that, that's on point. Like that, that's like a stiff competition. <laughs> because Paul is telling me one thing that the world is telling me something different. The world is telling me this is just how it is. This is the way God set it up. This is God's design. It's beautiful in the sight of the Lord. But Paul is telling me that ain't what your body made for. He said, but for the Lord and for the body. Ooh, now you get a little deeper. So he going to identity and purpose now. Just like meats is for the belly and the belly for meats and there's that relationship and God is overall. Your body ain't for, for fornication, but your body is for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. So your body exists. Your body belongs to, exists for the service of the Lord. So there's a similar relationship, just like it's meats for the body and meats for the belly and belly for the meats. Meats exist in the way it's designed is to be inside of the belly and the belly exists and is designed to get the fullness and the nutrients out of the meats and there's this relationship where they relate to one another. In that same way, your body, your physical being is made for the Lord. That's what it's made for. So why can't I just do what I want to with my body? Why can't I just live the way I want to and, and, and pursue whatever I want to is my body. Because your body ain't made for you. Your body ain't made to, to, to coalesce to your desires, to condescend to your passions. Your body is made for the Lord. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So since my body belongs to the Lord and the Lord is for my body, who determines how my body is used? Who determines the benefit of it? Who determines the purpose of it? Who determines what it should be participating in, what it should not be participating in? The Lord. So just like I can't go to the courts and let the heathens judge these matters because I'm above the courts and one day I'm going to judge the world, so I cannot participate in fornication. I cannot participate in all these unrighteous activities because I belong to God. And this is the understanding that we have to get. So I stop fornicating. I stop lying. I stop being a drunkard. Not because I'm striving to attain to some external judgment, but because I've been washed and because I've been sanctified and because I've been justified, my body now belongs to the Lord. That's the basis of holiness. And we need to get this in my mind. I don't own me. God does. So what I'm doing don't make him happy. I shouldn't be doing it because that's the reason my body exists. Go to 14. It's saying God have raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his own power. Know you not that your bodies are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of an harlot? God forbid. It's the same principle. Don't you realize this? No, you're not. So this is what you need to know. Your bodies are the members of Christ. Your body is the members of Christ. So your body belongs to who? That's who it belongs to. So if it is, who gets the preeminence 
on what should be done with it. He does. That's what he means by know you not that your bodies are the members of Christ. And so he asked this question. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of an harlot? God forbid. And the the principle is identity. So I can't take what belongs to Christ and put it in a place where Christ don't want to be. So Christ and a harlot, Paul already told you they don't mix. In chapter 5, he told you not to eat with fornicators. He told you not to associate with them. He told you not to be in in agreement with them. And now, since you realize your body belongs to Christ, can you take your body and make it a part of something that God ain't down with? No, because it ain't yours. Keep tracking. Say what? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body, for two saith he shall be one flesh. Now Paul getting deep and he's going in on this fornication thing now. And what he mean by you taking the body of Christ and making it one to a harlot, he takes the principle of Genesis. He said, God said, the twain shall be one flesh. Talking about the, the, the act in the union of marriage. And what he's saying is when you fornicate, there's a bond and there's a oneness that's being created. So you're taking God's body and putting it and making it a part of something that God ain't approved and tell you to make it a part of. That's what he means by you becoming one with, taking the body and making it one with the heart. So your act with your body, keep, let's keep going. Verse 17 said, but he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man committed is without the body. But he that committed fornication sent it against his body. So our body belongs to who? Belongs to God. When we commit fornication, so you're taking what belongs to God and you're making it one with an harlot. And this is why he tells you to flee fornication. Said because every sin that a man doeth is without the body. What he means by that is every sin that we do, the body is not the principal instrument of it. It goes out beyond, without. But when a man commits fornication, it's against the body or it's to the body. So fornication is an act where the whole of your being is being connected to another being. It's an act where oneness is being connected to becoming one flesh. This is literal. So there's a union that takes place in fornication that is a sin against the body because you're taking the body, the thing that belongs to Christ, the thing that belongs to God, and you're joining it with something that do not belong to him. So you're pimping God's stuff. <laughs> Are you understanding what I'm saying? Said what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And this is the foundation of it. But this is what we need to understand to truly understand holiness. And you see how many times in this end, 
Well, really, throughout this chapter, Paul kept asking a question. Know you not? Don't you know? Don't you realize? So in the eyes of Paul, this whole argument is built on understanding of identity. All this talk about well, who's going to inherit the kingdom of God? Who we can associate with? What type of judgment we can make? All boils down to this final thing. You need to know that your body is the temple of God. You are not your own because you have been bought with a price. And Paul applies this both to physical body and to spirit. So therefore glorify God with your body and your spirit, which are God's. So how much of you belongs to you? None. How much of you do you get to dictate what it's supposed to be, how it should be used? None. So let's just say, for argument's sake, that a strong desire rises within me and it's pushing me to do something that I don't think God want me to do, but it's, it's a passion. It's in me. This is go beyond my body. It's all deep down in my soul, in my spirit. Who do you need to ask before you do it? God. Why? It's his. You understand what I'm saying? So passions does not dictate what we do. Impulse doesn't dictate what we do. God dictates what we do. And it's our relationship with him that is the basis from which all our actions flow. So I glorify God in my body because my body belongs to him. And anything that I do that does not tend to the glory of God, that does not tend to making God look great, that does not father this relationship and this union and this communion with him, I cannot do it. But what if it ain't sin? What if I like it? What if they pay me for it? Anything that hinders, that hampers, that deviates from union and communion with God, the glorification of God, I cannot do it. So the question I begin to ask myself is not, is this a sin? Is that a sin? The question is, God, do you want me? God will do this glorify you. God, does this express your nature, your beauty, your grandeur? Because this body ain't mine, it belongs to you. Therefore, I glorify God with it. And that's my zone in. So that's why I can go back and be like, Paul, all things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. Expedient for what? Expedient for glorifying God. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Can't nothing else control me. Why? Because God's supposed to be the one controlling me. So I can't let anything dictate me, rule me, overpower me, be at a point that I can't stop it, that I can't separate myself from it, because that means it has taken the place of God, because I belong to him. You understand what I'm saying? It's just like, help, help you understand. Get, get your little feelings and emotions. Like, Maybe y'all need not experience this, but have you ever had time where something like went wrong at the bank? 
and they block you from getting your money. You put it in there, you work for it. And for some reason, system down, clerical error, whatever it may be, they won't let you get your own money. How that make you feel? Oh, well, the little passion get the ball in there. And for everybody, it's the same thing. It's my money. <laughs> and you might keep calm because you're a Christian and you saved and all that stuff. And you don't blow up on the people because you understand it ain't their fault. But you still got this same question that always arises. How I can get my money? Because in your mind, ownership gives you a certain right that nobody should be able to step in between. Since it's yours, since it belongs to you, you don't care what the system did, what the bank manager said, what, what, what type of clerical error been made. All you need to know is how in the world y'all going to stop me from getting my money. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, if they were loaning you some money, you'll be a little upset, but you won't feel the same way because that ain't your money. You walk your little tail on, sad, <laughs> and be mad and rebuke the devil because he's trying to block your blessing, which is not a blessing at all. <laughs> but when it's yours, when it's the one you work for, when that one they took out of your account that your boss put in now because you went to work, you made all them hours. I worked hard for my money. He didn't sit out of there. <laughs> but just that idea, that concept, the possibility that somebody can take what belongs to you and hinders you from using it the way you want to is just, just like you can't fathom that. And no matter what explanation they give, it does not make sense. Because you got one question. How y'all ain't going to let me get my money? And you mad? You ready to close the account? You calling all across the world? Who I need to talk to to get my money? That's the way we feel. Because somebody has taken something that belongs to us and it has restricted our use of it. And I'm here to say that God is asking you, how are you going to tell him he can't use his body? Because it's his. And God ain't trying to fornicate. God ain't trying to be covetous. God ain't being no idolatry. God ain't making men to be effeminate. God ain't doing none of that stuff. God is seeking to reflect his power, his glory, the beauty of his holiness here on this planet. That's what he's trying to do. God is seeking to seek and save the lost. God is trying to build his church. That's what he's trying to do on this planet. That's what he's doing. God is a joyful God who's rejoicing and singing. That's what he's doing. God is a God of love who loves all people at all times, no matter what they did to him. That's what he's doing. And he got some bodies down here he want to use to do that. And how are you going to tell him that he can't use his body? So when he calls us to do something, when he requires us to do something, 
whether it's a positive or a negative. What I mean by that, you better not do whatever, whatever. And you resist, you go forward. What you're doing is what them same folk did to your money. And you saying, God, it is a clerical error. That my heart, the messed up, and there have been some discrepancies in the account. Because my mind understand on this screen that you said don't do it. But this computer over here called my passions and saying this is what I need to do. This is what's going to make me happy. This is what's going to give me joy. This is what's going to give me satisfaction. But since I can't reconcile these accounts, God, you can't do what you want to do. That's what we be saying. And what God is still is saying is, how are you going to tell me how I'm going to use my money? Are you understanding what I'm saying? And when God tell us to do something, he said, we want to reach and seek and save the lost. I want you to love on your neighbors. Go be kind, be compassionate, give, step outside. And you be like God. You're going to have to talk to my manager. Say, like, who, who's your manager? Well, I know this is your body. And I really want to give you your body. But this is thing inside of me called fear, and it controls what we do down here. And I cannot get approval to give you your money until Phil tell me it's okay for me to do it this time. That I'm going to be safe. That ain't no harm going to happen to me. That I'm not going to embarrass you or anybody else. So please be patient with me, God, until Phil getting me the permission to override this block that we got going on. So please, God, talk to my manager. And God is looking at you like, how is you going to tell me when I can get my money? Are you understanding what I'm saying? But if we understand that it's because of our position and it's because of our relationship that it's the outflow of all these other things, that makes it a whole lot different. So when fear do creep in and when fear do hit, hit our mind, we need to understand that it's not me wrestling against fear because I ain't in control of nothing. It's fear trying to take ownership of God. And I need to go to God and say, God, man, you see this circle? I know you told me to do it, but he's telling me I can't. God, you better come and get your money. <laughs> because they're joking the rule like I can't beat them God he ain't got to so I can be holy not because of any exertion on my behalf I got to get the, the part right now first I got to get the positioning right first I got to get the know you not part first so whatever it takes for me to get this through my skull and my obstinate heart, that my body don't belong to me. My life belongs to God. God, I'm yours. Everything about me belongs to you. And everything that ain't experienced, everything that don't tend to, to, to push me towards you, everything that's trying to control me that ain't you, you need to get it away from me. Because my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. So instead, we need to be like them folks who fix and work on your car. Uh, who, who sell you big stuff? Like I said, you can go down some places. I've been to like little stores auction. 
And they, they had a little auction that belonged to the people. And they auctioned it off, everything in there. And what they do is, after you buy it and you purchase it, they're going to let you know, we cut the lock, it's yours. But you better come get it. You got to come get it. They ain't going to lift a finger to help you. They ain't going to provide you with no truck, no pallet jack, none of that. No matter what's in there, once you buy everything in there belongs to you. And if you don't use it, you don't come and get it, it's trash because they don't want it. And that's how we need to be with this here body. God, I done sold it to you. It's yours. And it's sitting here waiting on you. And you need to come get your stuff. I want it. It's good stuff. And it needs to be used. I want to be used. But God, come get your stuff. Because if you leave it with me, it's trash. I can't do nothing with it. Because I don't deal in, in, in destiny. I don't deal in transforming lives. I can't make me right. I can't raise children. I can't love everybody the way they're supposed to be loved, but that's what this body was made for. So you need to come get it so you can use it the way it's supposed to be used. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Understand that your life ain't your own. So every time you see something in you contrary to what it's supposed to be, you need to talk to the owner. Now you understand? You, you, are you with me? Talk to the owner. Tell him to get his bag chilling in line. And that's you. And once we get this in our school, that because of who we are and our connection with Christ, holiness ain't such a big deal. Because all holiness is, is being devoted to him. Letting God use what he want to use the way he want to use. That's it. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? And it outflows to actions because God doing some stuff in this world. And God is utilizing your body. So I love, and love is holy. But it ain't because I got to strain myself to learn how to love. It's because God is using me and that's who he is. I don't do some stuff and I abstain from some stuff and that's being holy. But it ain't because I didn't put it in my mind and discipline myself that there's certain things I can't do. It's because that God don't participate in those activities and he's the one that's controlling me. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So when I say I can't, it's not because it's wrong. It's because I belong to God and I'm bigger than that. So when look, Johnny Mac trying to mack on you and he telling you you acting all uppity and stuck up and you think you better than me or something? Say yes. I am. You want me to tell you why I'm better than you? Because God owned me and I've been bought with a price. And he don't let my body to be used in any and every old way. So if you want to be with me, you need to be with God. Because only holiness works around here. And I'm too good to be used for any and every old thing. God going to use me. You understand what I'm saying? So I'm too good for that. You too good for that. And what is that? Anything that ain't God thing. And don't be ashamed to be too good. Because one day you're going to judge the world. One day you're going to sit on the kingdom of God and be a king and priest in this here planet. But yet and still, you let the world tell you what you can and cannot do. That's foolish. 
God is our controller and our life flows from him. Anybody got his, any questions? So um, in verse 11, it talks about us being washed and, and being sanctified. And then he goes and teaches about fornication. If we're washed, if we are sanctified, then why is that an issue? Because I, I, I guess in my mind, I'm thinking that when you're at a point where you're abstaining from these and it's not a temptation that at that point that that's when you're washed and sanctified. Okay. I see what you say. And make sure we're saying the same thing. So what you're saying is there's a certain level of washedness and sanctifiedness and your idea of being that is that anything other than that won't really tempt you. I guess because I'm thinking that there's an order to it, yeah. and it seems a little backwards to me the way that he lays it the out. Because he, he, he says that you are washed, you are sanctified, and then he's teaching about stuff that washed I would think that if you're washed and sanctified, it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, and I think he did it that way because that's his argument. So he's arguing against all these practices that he was talking about in chapter five. And so when he, why he puts that in the middle is that's the transition. And this is the, that verse and the end verse is the bulk of his argument. So everything flows from that. Those are his premises. You wash, you sanctify, you justify. And then that's when he goes to all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. So, but since I'm washed, since I'm sanctified, since I'm justified, I shouldn't be participating in these activities. Because this is not who I am. And so what his mark is, what he want the reader to get, or the audience is to get, that I'm participating in these activities, but I'm supposed to be this. Maybe I'm not that. You, you get what I'm saying? So it's not that he's saying that since you got these, this is your big problem. What he's saying is this is what you're doing, but this is who you are. And they shouldn't be together. That's why from that point, he kept saying, don't you know? I know you're not. Don't you realize this is who you are? Don't you realize that this is what's true about you? Don't you realize that this is what's true about God? So how can these things be true and these things be true? And so the, the idea to get is either you accept the reality that I'm washed, I'm sanctified, I'm justified, and I shouldn't be doing that, or you say I'm doing that. So what he said about the people who should not inherit the kingdom of God, that's true about me. So I need to change. And you, you get what I'm saying? So it, it, that's just his way of arguing. So he's arguing from identity to action. So certain actions are exempt from you because of who you are. And that's why he put it in the crooks like that. And he goes back into his argument. Go ahead. Just want to um, touch on, I guess, a part of that question, too. Somehow, some way. A lot of us have it in our brains that it's like some super level of sanctification and holiness where temptation doesn't exist. As long as you have flesh, you will have temptation. And I know this just basically looking at Jesus's life. Satan took him off when, you know, he was going for those 40 days fasting and he was tempted. And the Bible says that Jesus was tempted at all points and still didn't sin. So if Jesus is the pinnacle of holiness, the pinnacle of righteousness, the pinnacle of sanctification, what we all are supposed to grow up to be him 
and he was tempted, that lets me know as long as I got on flesh, as long as I'm on this earth, there will be temptation. But there is a way through the Holy Spirit that we can live with temptation and still not sin the same way Jesus did. It's not like I'm just going to be walking around here and never want to do anything to satisfy my flesh. That's why he talks about picking up your cross, dying to yourself. Paul talks about in Romans 6, mortifying the deeds of the flesh or counting my flesh as dead. Reckon yourselves as dead to the flesh so that we can live in righteousness. But as long as I got this dirt bag until this corruptible body puts on the incorruptible, there will be temptation. Jesus says temptations will be there, but woe to the one who brings the temptation. And he won't allow you to be tempted more than you're able. But with every temptation, he'll make a way of escape so you don't fall. He says, blessed is the man who endures temptation, because when he endures, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised for him. All those things let us know that temptation will be around, but we can be holy. We can be sanctified in the midst of temptation or while temptation is yet present with us, because by the power of the Holy Spirit, we overcome the temptation. Um, this There is this this some kind of idea that people believe that there is no possible way that you can be completely holy and live just as Jesus did. Uh, somewhere, some way, that is what people believe. And sometimes I find myself even questioning, like, this ain't possible. Like, it's not completely possible to do this because of whatever reason. I, I don't know. And I guess that t- I was going to talk about when you said something about, you know, things not having power. You know, people use... Oh, well, I'm gonna do this, but it don't got power over me. I'm just doing a little bit. So, I guess that right there. Yeah, well, that goes to the first part of Paul's argument in that same verse. Because the first one, all things are not are lawful, but all things are not expedient. So there are certain things that hampers or go against the cultivation of my devotion and my holiness to God. So. I can say, well, I can do this. It don't control me. It ain't got no power over me. But is this helping you? Is this building you up? Is this drawing you closer to God and increasing your love and devotion to him? And if the answer is no, or you can ask, since we made it to the end, am I glorifying God in this activity? As he said, glorify God in your body because you're not your own. So it ain't got power over me, but can I do this in a way that's consistent with glorifying God and lifting up God and not bringing shame or dishonor to God? Now, do I have to answer questions when I do this? I used to, I thought you was a Christian, but <laughs> you, you, you get what I'm saying? Yeah, so people do try to cheat and say, well, it ain't controlling me. Sometimes it's bigger than that. There's certain activities we don't do because of who we are. Go ahead. Cheating. I don't know, like, this, oh my bad today. Like, cheating, and you said something about it earlier about, you know, the musicians arguing about this, but still thinking that they're going to heaven. So, does cheating, maybe it doesn't disqualify you from going to heaven, but it disqualifies you from, from what? Talking about, like, defrauding or cheating one another? Or just cheat, or trying to, like, skip through the process. Yeah. When, when you go to cheating or scheming or getting over, what you're showing is a reflection of a heart issue. 
because there's a reason you you choose chose this method over another. So like in the Proverbs says over and over again that uh, unjust weight is an abomination unto the Lord. That's a heavy proverb that most people really don't pay attention to. So the unjust weight is an abomination unto the Lord. And what it means is, like I said, back then, most exchanges was made in the form of weights. So they had shekels and denarii. It was straight money like we do. So if you went to the market and you bought some greens, they tell you that one bundle of greens going to cost you two shekels. But what some people would do is they'll take two shekels and they have it hollowed out and put some lead in it. So when you bring your exchange and you weigh in yours, you're going to have to put about six shekels in there to balance it out. And that's what he mean by unjust weight. But the Bible said that's an abomination unto God. So God hates it. God loathes it when we cheat and we defraud one another. But one is not an expression of love. Because if I truly love you, I want to benefit you, not take away from you and defraud you. So if I'm cheating you, that show you that I ain't love you. I'm loving myself because I don't care what it costs you or how it hurts you. I'm trying to get mine. So that heart, that type of heart will exempt me from heaven. And also that type of heart shows a covetousness because it's a longing and a lust to gain. So I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make sure I come out on top because my ultimate goal is to fat my pockets. So. If you send me, I'm doing some work for you and I'm fixing on your car and I tell you, you're going to need a new gasket, but I run down there and get it. I know you at work. It's going to cost you $200 just to be at the part. I'll let you know what the label costs later. And I go down there to pull apart and find one for $10 and put that little raggedy thing on your car. That shows my heart that all I care about is money. And I'm trying to manipulate the situation to be covetous, but covetousness Paul is in that list. So cheating and defrauding one another is a reflection of a heart activity. How do you, because I can, I feel myself doing that sometimes and I don't really do it to people, but I do it to God a lot. Like, okay, I'm going to read 10 minutes and okay. How do you, how do you get out of that, that thing? Cause I know that's, that's cheating God cause he deserves more than 10 minutes of my time. Well, you start back with the Proverbs again. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but he so confesseth and forsaketh them. What's the end of it? Will obtain mercy. That's it. I couldn't think of it. So will obtain mercy. So. The place where you start is right there. You confess. So if you got that conviction, it didn't hit you. Like, I'm cheating God in this. You be honest with it. You open it. God, I'm cheating you in this. Now, if it's something where there's a weakness within you that makes it a hindrance for you to get over it. I'm trying to think of examples. I just say by, by nature, you've been a procrastinator and a sorry joker ever since you've been in elementary school. And no matter how many whoopings you got, no matter how many times the teacher told on you, you still just done the same. It's just your nature. You can't have it. If that's the, the cause, you go from confession to pleading. So God, I don't want to be this way no more. 
I can't help it. God, you're going to have to help me. That's part of that confession and that's part of that forsaking. So you may not have the power to physically forsake, but within the heart, you can forsake it before God and say, this ain't what I want to be. This ain't what I'm trying to do. And he that confesseth and forsaketh shall find mercy. So God's mercy is revealed, which makes room for his grace to come in. You, you get what I'm saying? So if that heart is in you, and you like some folks, they're born that way. Some folks are just slickers and liars. And no matter how many times they got whooped, everything they do, they, they just, they're just trying to get over. They're just, that's just the way they work. They, they manipulate. I'm saying the people put the free candy out there on, on Halloween and tell you just take one. They're going to take the whole bucket. And they're going to come with you with a story of why they had to take the whole bucket. Because there wasn't number one left in there. You know what I'm saying? And my, my bag had broke. So, you know what I'm saying? They're they going to have a scheme. Some people just do that. And they do it without realizing. They, they hearts are evil. And they shice it. They born that way. But does that excuse it? No. You have to confess it and you forsake it. So it works the same way. So that conviction hits you, God. God revealed it to you. I'm doing wrong. I'm showing you. You confess it and you seek him for the grace to pull it off the right way. Can I ask you a question? Any? I'm back on uh, temptation. I don't quite see it clear in my head. I guess because people consider a lot of stuff and they consider that temptation. Like, um, but you know, what it says that the uncleanness comes from our heart flows from our heart. But mm-hmm. I guess for, for example, the, the scripture that talks about that he, he that looks on a woman to lust after her, to him. You committed adultery already yeah. in the heart. So I think that normally people would call that temptation if they were dealing with that in their life mm-hmm. because they didn't do the act. It's like, I'm being tempted. But is that not temptation? That's not part of, that wouldn't be considered a temptation? Yeah. Um, go to, well, first pay attention to what was said there. That's Matthew chapter 5. He says, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. The law says don't commit adultery. I tell you, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. And then people immediately snatch that and say, lusting is sin. So the word lust just means to have a strong desire. Most of the time we, we use it in a, a sexual connotation, but to lust just means to have a really strong desire for something. You go to James chapter one, and he's talking about temptation. James chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Here in that verse 15, it's a, well, 14, it says, When a man is tempted, when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. That just means it has to be something within me, something within my flesh that has a desire for this thing. Like you can't tempt me to eat njutta or asparagus. You can't do that. You're not tempting me to eat Thai food. It's not happening because I like fried chicken and candy yam. You're just not tempting <laughs> me to eat that type of stuff. Anything sour or spicy or bitter just not a temptation to me because there is zero desire in myself for those things. So 
in order to tempt me, though, if I'm trying to lose 10 pounds and you show up with some sweet potato pie, now that's going to be tempting to me because there is a desire that exists within me for that. And there's also another plan that I have losing my 10 pounds that goes against that desire. So then it becomes a temptation. Then I'm enticed. So that's verse 14 just happened. I'm drawn away of my own lust and enticed. So it got me looking, got me thinking about this thing. I, I, I want that. I, I'm, I'm considering now, what am I going to do? But then verse 15 says, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And this is where we got to pump the brake. We can't let that lust conceive. We got to use some, some, some spiritual prophylactic. So we got to, we got to do something here. To stop the lust from conceiving. And that's when, when, when Paul is telling us to take every thought captive. The temptation is there. What we do with that temptation, what we do with that desire is what determines whether or not it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. The wages of sin is death. Same thing here. But it's that point between, I know I want this. My flesh desires it. What am I going to do with it at that point? When I decide to turn away from it, then I get back up to verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. So I can't be blessed for enduring temptation and receiving the crown of life if temptation in and of itself means I'm sinning. But the only way to be tempted is to have a desire for something that you ain't supposed to be having. So the fact that you have a desire for something that's not holy or have a desire for something you're not supposed to be having, that doesn't mean that you're in sin. It's just you got to take that thought captive. You got to mortify the deeds of the flesh when you sense that stuff rising and slap it down. Now, it's going to change as your your spirit increases and your flesh decreases and all that stuff. Because it's kind of like at the beginning, when I first got on this Jesus journey, there was some stuff that was like me wrestling with a giant. It was like, man, I really had to fight to endure that temptation. I really had to put a lot of thought to it. Think about Jesus, focus, focus, focus on doing what's right because I had a baby spirit. But then later on, those same things is becoming like fighting a one year old. It's there, but I kind of just press it aside and it's not really a struggle. It's, it's not really a problem, even though it's still present. So if I'm finding myself in something that's really a bear, that's when I'm praying. That's when I'm fasting. That's when I'm seeking God. This thing is ever present with me. I need you to do something about this thing. And that's when we build up that spirit to put it down. But it is possible to put it down, even though it's being always present. So if I find myself consistently struggling, that's just me, my spirit week. I need, I need to do, as, as the rapper say, do some reps and sets <laughs> and, and be seeking God to build up my spirit, man. So these temptations don't, the, these, these molehills don't seem like mountains to me. But the difference between, I forgot about this too, in, in the Matthew part, he says, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her, that shows intent. The reason I looked at her was so that I can activate the strong desire I have for that. That sin. It's like I'm going looking for it at that point. If a man looks after a woman to lust after her, that shows the intent of him looking was to lust. The easiest um, example we have in our society is something like pornography. 
What you looking at that for? The whole purpose in engaging in that is to activate this lust and desire. But if I happen to see somebody walking down the street and I'm like, oh, she's whatever, whatever, then it's my job to be like, all right, put that thought in its proper place. All right, beautiful creature of God, I'm married. Press on with life. No sin has been committed. And it's a lot of guys out there and girls, too, that get bogged down on themselves because they see somebody and notice they're attractive or whatever. They'd be like, oh, I got this lust in my heart. No, you have eyes. <laughs> that's, that's all that ha- you have eyes. And, and it's OK to have eyes. I, I promise you, you people who haven't been married, you ladies, once you get married to your husband, all of every other man on the planet doesn't just instantly become ugly because you got married. It just doesn't happen that way. But what do we do with that? It changes in our mind and we're not going out looking for it. Am I purposefully putting myself in situations where I'm going to lust? That's the sin because you're doing it. You setting yourself up. Basically, another scripture talks about uh make no occasion for the flesh and stuff like that. You creating a flesh buffet on purpose. You've already done the sin in your heart. If you're setting all the conditions for Whatever Moses said, don't do. You like setting all the conditions for it without actually participating in it. And Jesus is saying it's just as bad. Anybody else? Where did the idea of holiness begin? In God. <laughs> so the whole idea of holiness begins in God because that's the nature of God. God exists for his own glory. He's he's separate. He's distinct from all creation. And that's the idea of holiness. And we get a form of it by being dedicated to him. So we can never be truly be holy like God is holy. But we can be holy because he is holy. So because God is distinct, he's separate. Ain't nothing on this planet like him. It applies to us when we devote ourselves to him. It's like if you read the Old Testament. A lot of times he'll give them distinct laws, like the dietary laws. And he said, you need to follow these so that you won't be like the people around you. Because I called you unto myself, you must therefore be holy like your father in heaven is holy. So he was giving them the picture. So you being distinct from the rest of the whole world and being this special class of people makes you like me. Because I'm distinct from all creation. I'm this special class of being. Can sin re-enter once it has been destroyed? Can it re-enter? Yes. It can re-enter in the sense that you can compromise and stop believing, which is the heartbeat of sin. So it's possible for a person to believe, to pursue God, and stop. And start believing in other stuff and other things and Sometimes they start trusting in themselves. That's one of the biggest ways sin re-enters. You reach to a level where you ain't struggling with the stuff we used to struggle with, and you get a level of comfort. Well, I'm, I made it. I didn't got it. And pride creeps in. And the most time, that's how sin re-enters. Uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians 11. It says, take heed you that think you stand, lest you fall. And the idea is <clears throat> there are certain people who think they have made it, and they done got to this certain high level and they special, and they start feeling themselves. In God's hands of grace, the thing that holds them is removed, and they end up being themselves, which causes them to fall. And that's what you see with a lot of people, bishops and deacons and so on and so forth. But is it possible? Yes. 
the only thing that keeps us from sinning is God. And the only thing that keeps us in God is faith and believing in him. So if you stop believing, yeah, sin going to take back over. That's it. They're all yours.